spent a good part of the day in a large brick mansion on the banks of the Rappahannock, used as a hospital since the battle. Seems to have only recently gotten the worst cases. Outdoors, at the foot of a tree, I notice a heap of amputated feet, arms, legs, hands, etc. A full load for one, a one-horse cart. Walt Whitman, Battle of Fredericksburg. So, one thing that actually, I was thinking about this the other day, Marie, after mm-hmm. you said this the first time mm-hmm. you sent me this, was it's only an amputation if it's not the head. Right? Well, if you, you, can't amp- you can't amputate the head. To find a point on it. You know what? You can't amputate the head. You know what that's called? Beheading. Yeah. But like, and they well, don't call it befooting or like be arming. Well, so here's... <laughs> It should be no. deheading too, not beheading. Beheading sounds like you're giving someone a head, like I behead you or bewed. I, right? I behest, I behest you a head. Yeah, like isn't beheading isn't to bewed to become wed to someone, and so to behead would be to become headed to someone. <laughs> it should be deheaded, right? Shouldn't it be? De-headed? Hello, dear listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. My name is Chris Cogswell. I am joined by my ever patient co-host. Marie Mayhew. <laughs> We're just busting out the semantics on on uh, decapitation. Just That's what it is. It's decapitation. It is decapitation. And beheading. Okay. So it is a D. You got your decapitation in there. But so then can you capitate? So to capitate something would be to give it a head? Decapitate? No, to cap... If decapitating to, is to, to take capitate. away a head, well, then capitating would be to... Would be to capitate. Well, e- in Latin, capitate, right, is head. So it is of the head. Is that real? So no, decapitate. wait. You don't, speak, you don't speak Latin. Is capitate really head? Dude, yes. Capital, yes. I've, I took like four years of Latin. Did you really? Yeah. Holy crap. Like I got like a D out of the entire thing, but oh, I got sure. enough. Okay. Seriously, capitate. Capital. Head. The head of. All right, dear Google listeners, it. we are here with an episode on the history of surgery. <laughs> Three minutes in, we roll around to what the actual subject is. Killing Sweet. it. Killing it. Excellent podcasting. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Today's episode, the history of surgery. So... This episode, we are going to be talking about the history of surgery. And so this actually came about from I, my, my wife, uh, Katie, who um, I have bewed, has decided... She still, she still has a head. She still has a head, she has though. Not been yeah, no, and she I, has a beheaded Chris, too. So. Right, no, we're good. So Big up yourself, Katie. Doing great, doing great stuff. Still has a head, age, you know, whatever. Doing great. Um, so she actually suggested to me that this would be a really good topic. And we've actually had a lot of listeners ask about this subject in particular, but more, more specifically about the body snatching, which we're going to get into more. Gruesome. Yeah. Gruesome MNFers out there, man. Yeah. And it really, it really is. It actually is a really big part of the history of surgery is like, how did we learn anatomy if you weren't allowed to uh, study bodies? Right. But anyways, so uh, in particular, this series is going to grab from a couple of books. Um, yes. It's going to cover Ooh. from uh, The Butchering Art, which is a really, really uh, fascinating book. Um, 
This is the butchering art Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine by Lindsay Fitzharris. Uh, that book is super good. Um, it's, Ugh. it's so good. It's really, really fascinating. Even, you know, so I'm a, I'm a sciencey kind of guy, but, um, but I, I'm, I am so into this book. It is so good. It's yeah, it's phenomenal. Uh, Marie, which book did you? Nice, nice and gruesome. So I read blood and guts by Richard Hollingham, which is about the same time period. The history of surgery sort of picks right up with, uh, the, the, the most recent transplant and then kind of goes back into back into all of the uh, the lovely gruesome details. Nice. And then the other book that I have uh, actually just started listening to on Audible is The Knife Man, Blood, Body Snatching and the yes. Birth of Modern Surgery by Wendy Moore. And so um, this one's about uh, John Hunter, who we are going to get into a little bit this episode, but really talk about um, really the things that made him so revolutionary as we get into the later episodes. So um, really to start this episode off, I think it would be good to kind of first give a general outline of, you know, what, what makes surgery so different from medicine and what really were the big transformative moments or really, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, science, science is interesting because in many ways, science has a storyline. And what's really nice about science is that in many cases, the storyline of science is of continued progress, right? There are, there are periods and moments in time where we definitely step back away from progress. So, you know, we look at the Middle Ages and that definitely plays a part. Plateau. That certainly, Plateau plays, a certainly plays a part in this story. Um, and, and of course, if you look at different areas of the world, I mean, the, um, the Islamic world really, when we were having our kind of Dark Ages moment, the Islamic world and, uh, you know, uh, China and uh, these other uh, parts of the world really were uh, pretty much keeping all of knowledge together for everyone. So thank Hold God. Yeah. Making progress. I mean, seriously. Concepts like zero, right? Zero yeah. Was, was uh, Arabic and Islamic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually oh. in, in the history of surgery, uh, India uh, plays an ex a particularly important part. But, um, so anyways, the, the story of surgery really, uh, really it's, it's the story of the hunt for three different, the, the solution to three different problems. And these problems are, uh, the ability to manage pain, the ability to manage bleeding and the ability to manage infection in yeah. Not that long ago, and even actually still today, in some cases, thanks to antibiotic resistance, the ability to actually go into the body and remove something or fix a mechanical problem with a body part by really, you know, getting in there, you know, opening the hood, so to speak, and, you know, really doing something of uh, doing something to the body that was not possible because, number one, it was so excruciatingly painful that um, there was just no way yeah. to get the kind of precision and uh, careful, careful control you need. Uh, well, I cry like a newborn with a paper cut. I yeah. mean, damn. Man. I mean, some of the stories we're going to hear about from the Civil War are oh. absolutely terrifying. I mean, you know, um, the decapitated guy had it easy. You know, like <laughs> rather be decapitated than dearmed or something. Um, but so, 
that was one big thing was actual pain management and being able to mm-hmm. keep the body from going into uh, shock from pain. Um, the next one was bleeding management, the ability to actually stop the flow of blood from uh, causing someone to die from lack of blood. Right. That was another huge issue. And yeah, then the th- and just third, being able to perform a surgery and being able to see what lit- you're able right. to do. Literally being able to see like mechanically again, it's a huge problem. And then finally, the the really big one, and this is still one that we do in, in some cases still fight with today, is the problem of infection. You know, the moment you open the body up, uh, the body, the cavity is not normally does not normally have uh, the bacteria and and all kinds of other things that are out there in the, in the world or even on our skin. And mm-hmm. so the issue of actually getting in there and even if you can fix the mechanical problem or whatever, you know, remove the tumor, whatever it is you're doing surgically um, in, in many cases, just being opened up like that was itself a death sentence for a very long time up until almost the modern age. So, um, and that's coming back now with, with, antibiotic resistance where yeah. um, by not being able to fight infection um, then you know surgery basically goes back to a time before uh, John Lister who we're going to talk about so that's kind of the that's kind of the broad strokes idea here for this episode um, but I think first off Marie we, hmm. we actually we were talking about this off the air a little bit uh, oh, Marie what, what kind of surgeries have you had Oh, or what kind of, oh. you know, yeah, let's, let's get into it. What surgeries have I had? Um, what surgeries what, haven't I had? What haven't I done? Um, <laughs> so I pierced my own ears in high school. No, um, <laughs> there we go. I, I actually did. Um, but more later on in life, I've had, uh, I, I severely broke an ankle. So I had to have basically all my bones and, uh, all of my ligaments and all my muscles uh, operated on and which is, you know, I've got hardware and all sorts of really cool stuff in there now. Um, which is amazing. You know, I get, I mean, I was thinking about that. I mean, the break was so severe. I basically, uh, slipped in water and the break was so severe that my left ankle almost 360 to round. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, the noise was, it was like, it was like, you know, tearing the, the, uh, the leg off of a turkey or something. It was something very similar. Jesus. Yeah, it was bad. It was very, very bad. Um, however, what was so amazing about it is went in, like, immediately, you know, was admitted to surgery. Um, and the amount of detail and work that they put into it. And the surgery itself was, like, three hours. And the amount of recoup coming out of it and physical therapy and what they had to do. And they kind of walked me through all the different, you know, bits and pieces that they kind of had to reassemble and put screws in and put plates in. But if this would have happened at a different time frame, I would not have the use of that foot. Wow. They would have had to, they would have had to have amputated it or it would have just healed or it would have just healed as a maimed foot and I would not have use of it. So, I mean, if you look at, like, sort of going back, I would say, again, pre-Civil War, Victorian era, pre-Civil War, um, when this kind of delicate, almost more um, modality-focused, specialized surgery wasn't wasn't developed yet, then you would have just 
you would you would have to have more of a generalist who would be able to do only so much. So it's pretty amazing. And that, so that's like I would say the most major surgery I had. <clears throat> my um my husband, Paul, when he was like I want to say 5 years old, he had uh he was born with a heart defect. So he was born with a hole in his uh one of the ventricles of his heart that was preventing uh the heart to be able to properly function. So the surgery for that was basically they put him under, uh, they lowered his, they packed him in ice. And this was, this was a few decades ago. So they packed him in ice, they lowered his body temperature, they stopped his heart, and then they, they cracked open his chest, fixed it, brought back up his body temperature and, uh, and, and put him back together and, you know, to this day, he still has like a little piece of Tupperware in his heart, but it's pretty amazing because that was, uh, that was like 30 plus years ago. Wow. And he's, and that's, that surgery that he had done, which to me is amazing because basically they froze him. <laughs> they put him on ice and froze him and in effect, you know, he was dead. And then they brought him back to life with the, with the repair in his heart. Now, 30 years later can be done in utero. So if they detect this, if they detect this with an ultrasound or, uh, yeah, with basically, yeah, with an ultrasound in the mother's womb, they can see the heart, the infant's heart or the embryo's heart. If they defect, if they detect this type of problem, they can actually go in, into the womb and fix it, which is amazing, which again, it's like, that's. That is almost science fiction type of surgery. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really crazy. It I mean, the idea that we can actually, before, really mm -hmm. before the cake is baked, you can kind of go in there and mess in. around with some stuff and fix stuff. It's pretty amazing. And fix right? it. And so then, yeah, I, I was just like, that is, I can't even believe that that is even, you know, a possibility. But Damn. yes. So how about yourself? Like I anticipate during one of your many hijinks for, you know, Halloween that you either, you know, I want to say that like you broke multitudes of bones doing half the stuff that I, sounded like you guys were up to. Actually, I was pretty lucky. I, I probably caused a lot of property damage, but <laughs> I didn't actually, I actually, I really, my, um, my like surgeries were pretty limited as a kid. Actually, it's kind of funny. Mm. I remember once, um, I have this, this is like one of my earliest memories actually is back when my, uh, back when my dad, uh, stayed at home, um, and he was still married to my, to my mom. Um, I was in the basement and I was watching Sesame street on this like big ass TV. We had, we had like, you know, those like really old, like 1990s, um, like, Oh, 1990s. TVs with, like, so the, long ago. So long ago. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But like, you know, it's like, a, it was like an 800 pound TV. It was like crazy, yeah. right? And um, the stupid TV. So we were watching, I was watching Sesame Street and there was a kid who was like, you know, I broke my leg, so I have to use this wheelchair. And I remember saying like, I didn't think my dad was, I didn't know my dad was in the basement with me when I was watching this. I remember saying like, oh, it'd be so cool to have a wheelchair. And all of a sudden my dad was like, <laughs> out of fucking nowhere, he was just like, no, it wouldn't be. No, you take it back. You take that back. You know what I mean? Uh. Like, I just remember being like so taken aback that he thought it was such a big deal that I said that. Oh. And I was like, what the hell? Like now I realize he was like, you know, being weirdly superstitious or whatever, but 
Well, or just being a parent. Yeah, and being sure. Like, For the love sure. of God, my able-bodied son. Yeah. Do not want you. Oh no, like, yeah. Boy, you know it'd be a cool. To I was like, oh, that looks so awesome to be like totally dope. confined to a wheelchair. Like, yeah, it would. It was, you know. I mean, now I'm glad that I have. I'm very blessed to have not had anything like that happen. Really, where I broke a bone oh. or anything. Um, I think the closest I came. So, actually, I did. I I have a lot of stuff with my eyes. I don't know why. This is, but like my eyes always get messed up in some way. So, um, probably the least serious of these was I went to do, I was on my skateboard and I went to like jump over this, like they were for a really, I still think they sell these. They were selling these really unsafe ramps from like Toys R Us or whatever. They were plastic and they were like not at all. Like they, like you would just put them on the ground and then try to go over them. But because they were so slippery because they're plastic they're like slick plastic you would go over them and they would just like slide out from under you oh my god so like you had to really First wave of nausea just yeah hit me so you so you had to go scared. you had to go you had to like really commit to jump over these things because or jump off of them because if you went too slow you would come to like the top of the ramp and the ramp would just start moving with you <laughs> right so to like you had to get enough speed that um your force would be enough to like keep whatever. It didn't really matter, but I was going off this thing. Fortune favors the bull. Yeah. Screams young going, Coswell. I was going off this thing and I got more speed than I thought I was going to. And I basically like I jumped off of it and then I landed where one of my feet landed on the ground and the other one was still on the tail of the board mm. and it flicked it up and it just, just destroyed uh, my eyebrow. Like my eyebrow just burst open like a boxer who had just gotten, you know, his socks knocked off of him in the <sighs> ring. And, um, I went in the house and got some water. I didn't even know that I was bleeding and, uh, I had blood everywhere. They rushed me to the hospital and like got stitches, whatever. But <laughs> so the only major, Dora, major surgery, the only like major surgery I've ever had though was, <laughs> um, was when I was a kid, my eyeball itself had to get surgery on it. Yeah, because mm. so we got a hamster and I was really excited about this hamster. I was running around the house. I must have been like, you know, five years old. Maybe this is another one of like my earliest memories. And um, and I was running into our kitchen. And so our kitchen, like it's on the first floor of our house. There's a long hallway and or not like a hallway. There's like a long straightaway, I guess. And mm -hmm. there's a doorway that's open without a door. And on the left hand side, we kept our garbage pail. And then on top of that garbage pail was the box, like the hamster, that the hamster wheel and all that crap came in. And that, like the flap of that box was just eye level for me. Oh, God, help me. And so I ran like full speed into it. And um, my eye was just like in searing pain. It wouldn't tear up like it was terrible. It really hurt. And so. Rushed me to the hospital. I had to get my eye, like, my, like, I think, I don't remember exactly what it was, but something on my eye had to be stitched back to the eye. Oh, dear God. I'm yeah. just going to rest my head here for a minute. And then I had to wear. I'm an, having a nice glass of wine. I'm, I'm sorry. Enjoy that I'm sorry. Me. No, no. I had no, to no, wear, continue. I had to wear an eye patch for like a month or two, maybe. I, like, the thing is, that's the thing. I was so young that I don't really remember all that much about it. I remember. I remember it happening. I remember it hurting really bad. And I remember mm -hmm. 
really being resistant to the eye drops that they had to have that I had to put in every night or every and then like, you were hour. a punk and then you made it worse for your poor for poor Dora your poor mom, patient just, Dora you know who had to rush you to the hospital again I'm telling you you get the eye drops in and make you wear probably an eye patch and you were like no yeah I was not into it so like, I don't really remember it that well you know who does mom I know I know I'm sure if I called my mom she would she might still have the eye patch or something she's just weird that way that she would keep that kind of stuff but um yeah that's like that was really the oh. only surgery i ever had i think i'm trying to think actually if i have ever even been like but I'm, again if that if that happened to you at a certain point of time with infection or with whatever right at you you might have lost an eye you might have well yeah it may have gotten gangrene it may have gotten anything at that point and you wouldn't have been able there would have been no you know, they could have maybe washed it out with some sort of herbal remedy, but there wouldn't have been any kind of recourse that would actually take something that's probably a relatively minor surgery, you know, and, and you're on your way home versus, you know, you know, it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. Sure. Well, actually, what's really interesting is what's really interesting, actually, is that the removal of cataracts mm -hmm. um is actually mm -hmm. one of the oldest, uh, one of the oldest surgeries out there. No. Um, yeah, the 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 uh, cataract surgery is is has there's evidence of cataract surgery all the way back to fifth century BC. That's crazy. actually where. Um, but but of course, why it, is that a good idea? It wasn't. Well, it wasn't great, right? So what they would do historically was, uh, basically, they would have to break the hardened lens to oh. restore some sight. And so they would find different ways to do that. Oh. Anyways, pretty gross. This episode, uh, listeners, for those of you who have not already turned us off, uh, <laughs> it is going to get a little gruesome potentially, but and that's including me, man. You open with eyeballs. I don't know about our listeners so out there, but man, I'll tell you what, like I'm a pretty hardened, you know, I, I criminal uh, to my heart. Well, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're not going that far allegedly, but like something about the eyeballs, it's just like, oh dear God. Oh, it's bad. Not, oh, okay. Anyway, it's bad. All right. So, uh, let's. So we're going all the way back. This is. Uh, so initially, the initially the idea of surgery. So when we first really started as a, I guess as a society or as societies, let's say, mm -hmm. um, just groups of people working together. You know, I, I think it became. It, you know, the, the beginnings of where kind of medicine and surgery start are, are murky, right? Just like everything else. Yeah. I mean, it's such a strange concept to begin with to think that you could, um, you know, one, one interesting question is sort of, you know, where does the mind reside, but also kind of mm -hmm. what do each of the, you know, it's such, it seems so obvious to us right now that the body is basically like a, a machine that's made out of organic material, right? Like we think of the body as these systems that come together in, you know, pipes and stuff like, I don't know, like when I, I mean, tell me if I'm off base here, Marie, but like when I think of mm. the, when I think of the body, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I actually kind of think, I, I, I remember back to when I was a kid and we learned about anatomy in school for a little bit. And, you know, they had that, um, they had like a clear, it was like an outline of a person and they had their mouth open and you could like track where the food went through the body. Yeah. It was pretty right? cool. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Um, that's that. kind of, and that's kind of really yeah. that's kind of really our modern oh. view of the body, right? It's a yeah, it's, it's a machine. It's a machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a machine that there's some kind of um, non-machine or non you know determinant parts like the soul or whatever you want to call it, but well, it's yeah, it's like it hosts. It is the 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 vessel that hosts the soul, right? But it itself is is functional, you right? Know, and like, and and ultimately, we yeah. we believe that disease and dysfunction of those mechanical parts are what cause illness and pain and ultimately death. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's Mm -hmm. this, there's this kind of idea where, you know, if we could only find a way to refresh the matter of the body, then maybe we would be able to cheat death. Right. Yep. Back in, back in prehistory. So, you know, uh, 10, you know, thousands BCE, the idea was very different of the body. The body was really a, uh, the body was almost a, a, a hole, a constituent hole, right? And if you had never mm-hmm. seen someone, you know, if, if, if you lived a relatively peaceful hunter gatherer lifestyle where you didn't see, um, a human be taken apart by an animal or something, which of course that was probably very rare to have not seen a death like that in your entire time. But, I think there's there's a no. there's a different like the body was thought of as being magical and the pieces of the body were thought of having magical properties. Yeah. You know. Well, you weren't supposed to be delving around in it. No, and right? that's cuz no good can come of the body being open. Right, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that yeah. it's the, it's almost this idea of, you know, the body was a sacred hole and so to open yeah. it to to get it into the body in some way was inviting death but also inviting um darkness and evil and and whatever so uh you know cutting a body Mm -hmm. was very very taboo right it was it was considered to be taboo and that that taboo continued really all the way until um almost modern times yes so the earliest really the earliest surgery that we have any evidence for is what is known as trepanation or trepanning and mm-hmm. the first, mm-hmm. uh, the first, another good one to another good, right after eyeballs, let's roll right let's in. Roll let's roll in and trepanning. Now really the trepan. first known, um, evidence of trepanning that we have is actually from, uh, France dated around 5,000 BCE. Um, and this was, uh, trepanning. Well, Marie, do you want to, do you want to go right into what trepanning yeah, is? Yeah, I'll go right in. So trepanning basically, and it was, it was, so France is the most, is the earliest, but it was very prevalent in what's now present-day Peru and Bolivia. Trepanning is removing a portion or a hole, or drilling a hole in the skull. Uh, so you're basically working your way you know, through the scalp and then removing the bone to alleviate pressure that has been caused within the brain for what could be actual medical purposes or more of a supernatural you're you're taking some action on the body to alleviate something that is infesting the body or that person with malevolence yeah so so there was again this idea that the body itself was a holy thing was a sacred thing and so for the body itself to become ill was surely a sign of 
um, the gods being upset with you or some kind mm-hmm. of evil force entering your body. Especially and, something like um, mental illness, something that couldn't be explained by head trauma yeah. or concussion. <laughs> well, but, but that's the thing, though, right? Like back yeah. then, back then, nothing could be explained, right? So well, it no, takes on, yeah, it takes on a, a large, I, I get what you're saying for sure. Yeah, like there's there's war, right? There's like you're going to war with a different group of people and you have a head trauma and yeah. one of the things that, that would, because you don't have projectile weapons necessarily of clubs or you have bludgeon, you know, you're going to bludgeon each other. If you're hit on the head and you are uh, concussed, one of the things that they did was Japaning. But mm. if there was, if you're just a normal everyday going about your everyday life and you have seizures or you have um, something else that is afflicting you, but has no sort of other, you know, other genus, uh, you know, other origin, then it could be more of a supernatural event, which ultimately results in the same thing, which is mm. drilling a hole in your head. Right. So the, <laughs> which again, to me, is like, Oh, it's, that's kind of extreme. That's kind of a go-to. That's so kind of a go-to extreme right. place, but that's all right. So the idea, the idea of, of this was that you would, you would open this hole and it would actually relieve pressure of the fluid surrounding the brain, mm-hmm. right? It would be, and we actually still do this sometimes. Um, People do this yeah, still. I was yeah. reading about that and I was like, are you shitting me? And what's actually, what? what's really, really yeah. interesting is that trepanning uh, is, uh, there's actually evidence that people lived after trepanning oh, yes. was, was performed on them. Yes. Um, and it yes. seems like, like Marie was saying, it was a relatively common practice. Yes. Um, you know, definitely kind of their go-to medical treatment for some things. And, and sometimes they've, they've found evidence, which is skulls, which have up to five. Right. Which is kind of nuts. It's like, you know, you already dug one hole. Why would you, yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes you wonder, it actually makes it, when I read that with the multiple holes uh, drilled, it makes me yeah. wonder kind of, um, it makes me wonder how, you know, if you look at like a material, you know, skull bone is just uh, mm. bone is a hydroxyapatite. It's a, it's a crystal. And mm-hmm. so you would think that if you're drilling holes in this thing, you know, got up to five, like mm-hmm. I would think that that's probably not good for the uh, structure. Yeah. Like you're every, you know, every time structure. you're ba- it's like cracking an egg. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's pretty solid when it's all one thing, but if you create a chink in it, even one yeah. little bit yeah. of, of stuff out, then that's going to be really bad. Right. Well, so, it's, 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 there's, there's actual fissures in it from when you're growing. Right. And there's, yeah. it has natural, I want to say seams for lack of better, phrasing but oh, yeah yeah you you can't weakening that to me is like oh my god um the one thing so the one thing that i thought was interesting is in what i was reading that they do draw a clear distinction between surgeons especially in like where this was real prevalent which is mayan um and sort of the mesopotamian cultures yeah trepanning was, trepanning was actually ex- yes. so let's let's actually say that yes. listeners trepanning was mm. actually extremely common um, and it was like oh, extremely common. Let me rephrase that. It was extremely um, dispersed around Prevalent. the world. Yeah. Like every, yeah. uh, every you culture know, did this. Every culture almost did this, which is very interesting. Um, yes. It should make you very leery of your neighbors. 
<laughs> They're over there with, you know, with power tools, with Makita saw, yeah, you know, bad. anyways. It's bad news. Um, but there were definitely, there were two different types of, of um, from what I was reading, there were two different sort of thought processes and methodologies behind this. One were surgeons um, that were actually, did this for medical reasons with, within, um, you know, treating people that had, that had had accidents or that had had, you know, coming back from battles. And then there were shaman who did this for more supernatural or religious regions. Sure. And the reason that they could sort of draw the distinction is they would find, um, they would actually find skulls with, uh, that would be, that would have gems embedded as well. Oh, I don't sure. know if you saw this, but I was like that. And again, these had no, they had no real medicinal purposes, but they were considered, you know, if something was going to be put back into the head, it was, it, this was again, a talisman or something to help, to help filter, um, the spirits or keep the body pure and whole. I mean, it's, I mean, listen, Body modification has come a long way. I say let's bring it back. I'm into it. Dude, I want the a fact ruby. That this happens. I want the a fact ruby. That this still sides. happens in this day, and that people do it without people don't. You know, like there's no trepanning. Like this is not elective surgery. Like this isn't cosmetic. You know, you can't really just go in someplace and you know to your local. You know, you know, double check on your local HMO and then walk into your you know general practitioner and say you want a burr hole drilled in your head right it's normally done ad hoc with a drill is what i was and i was like oh dear god like come on no 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 yeah but people have said that it has uh i was reading like a first person account of it a modern first day of account of it that had suffered from um manic episodes and um depression and they said that it had a lasting effect on uh, alleviating these things. Interesting. Which to me, it's like, again, I don't have a double blind randomized study on that. It's a little iffy. It's a little, I don't know. Well, you know, it's fun. It's interesting. A lot of the stuff that we find with ancient medicine in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like the stuff that caught on in the ancient past, there must've been, like, it must have worked in some way for it to have spread so far. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's kind of a sense of, this is kind of, this kind of goes back to uh, memetics and kind of like memes and how do memes spread? And what is mm-hmm. the spreading of mm-hmm. memes, um, you know, like our moral codes memes. And so you often get mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, you often get that kind of like ad hoc thing where people will say, you know, well, the reason why the Bible, uh, the Old Testament says not to consume pork is because pork was uh, dirty and it was, you know, easier to get uh, uh, infection. Trichinosis. From, yeah, yeah, from consuming pork, right? And like, okay, maybe that's the case. Like, maybe, I mean, maybe that's a good reason, right? But, um, but so anyways, this idea that like the moral code that was passed down to us today is actually, uh, you know, has no really, there's no divine inspiration necessarily for it. It's just kind of shorthands that worked to keep a society together, right? So it, it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense that if you are in a tribe full of people that will murder each other for no reason, well, that tribe isn't going to succeed. And so 
the tribes that do make a rule to say don't kill each other or have this kind of honor code of some sort or whatever, um, they're the ones that will thrive. And so that idea gets passed down. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder about that with things like trepanning or even say, uh, we're going to talk about a little bit in the Victorian era, electroshock therapy was uh, very common for all kinds of things. We were obsessed with electricity oh, and what it could yeah. do. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, electroshock therapy has, uh, was misused for a long time in mental health instances, but then we see that it's actually seeing a modern resurgence today where, um, it is useful for the treatment of things like epilepsy or, um, you know, depression that has been, uh, resistant to treatment in other ways. So mm. anyway, so I, f- I do find it fascinating that the idea of trepanning and kind of, uh, what it can do, you know, or, or what it, I mean, what it can do, what, uh, how did that start? Right. I guess is a, is a question. Yeah. So, so trepanning was kind of the standard thing. And actually what's, what I find so fascinating is about kind of, uh, ancient medicine is we actually see evidence that there were a lot, it was actually quite advanced. Um, and really not besides again, those three things, the idea of managing pain, managing bleeding and blood loss, and then managing infection, Surgery uh, for a long time was pretty much the same for thousands of years. Like the surgery Mm. that was going on in, um, you know, in in ancient Egypt where they would drain uh, pus from wounds and um, set bones and, you know, cut out tumors and stuff like that was Mm -hmm. that that was happening back then. And that's pretty much what was going on up until like right after the American civil war. So around 18, 1860 to say 1900, um, for, for the non-American listeners. Right. So, um, it really was not all that much more advanced now. One. So principles were the same. Pretty much. The ideology kind of held pretty much. So, uh, we really, so, so that the earliest trepanning evidence is 5,000 BCE, but it probably happened before then as well. We don't know how far back, but, that's as far back as we have evidence for. Um, and then in around, um, so we, and then we find evidence of different sort of, uh, you know, different sort of telltale signs of surgeries having been occurred. So, um, for instance, you know, a bone has a break in it and it seems like they set the bone, right? That's a very, mm-hmm. a relatively simple surgery. It's not really considered surgery because we're not cutting into the body per se, but it's really, uh, it's really one of the first instances sort of, of, where we're looking at the body as a mechanical thing that can be fixed by um, almost engineered means, right? And so yes. there's ev- there actually is a lot of evidence for the setting of bones and uh, using splints and things. Um, and we see, so we also see, though, evidence of medicine and medical practice in uh, different writings. And actually, one of the more interesting, I mean, so everyone knows about the Code of Hammurabi, or most people have heard about it. It's kind of one of the first... Um, the first cases of sort of law being written down. And in the Code of Hammurabi, there are actually, uh, there are actually rules or laws written out for uh, surgeons, right? So there's mm. things that say, you know, if you, if you take out, um, if you, if you do surgery on someone and they die, you have to lose the hand that you did surgery with. 
right? No. Yeah, and things like that, and and you know, malpractice looks good. And rules insurance, no, it's much more effective. And there are other there are other rules too, like you know, if you do surgery on a on someone's slave, and the slave dies, you owe them some amount of gold, right? So, um, so it's clear from these written codes that surgery was being done of some sort, but really, um. I would say sort of the very, one of the first instances of really modern day kind of surgery is um, Sushruta of India. So Mm -hmm. Sushruta, that's S-U-S-H-R-U-T-A in uh, kind of the English translation or anglicized translation. That's around 600 BCE. And I just, Mm -hmm. um, I had actually never heard of Sushruta until we started researching for this episode. But it is, I mean, the amount of things that they could do in 600 BCE on the edge of the Ganges is amazing, Marie. That's pretty cool. So it's this is more of an, yeah, this is a list. This is just a list. This is from, uh, I'm going to take this list from Wikipedia, but this, so this is from the Susruta Samhita, which is uh, a book, kind of a collection of teachings and writings on medicine written by uh, Susruta. Now there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of question about, you know, so su- was Sushruta a single person? Were there multiple Sushrutas? W- were there multiple people working on this uh, text over time? As far as historians can tell, um, this book, the uh, Sushruta Samhita, was composed over, you know, a long period of time. And so kind of similar to, say, you know, the Bible or any of these, like, mythic stories where a single person becomes... Um, what's the word? Uh, becomes it could be a collective. A, a collective, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, so this is uh, the from the uh, Wikipedia article on this is, and I and I suggest listeners go take a look at this because it's fascinating. The if you look at the pictures of the tools they were using back then for these uh, techniques, they are extremely um, pretty close to modern day. Right there are uh, what appear to be calipers and uh, what what seems to be like a monkey wrench of some sort. It's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so, um, okay, the Susruta Samhita in its extant form is 184 chapters and contains descriptions of 1,120 illnesses, 700 wow. medicinal plants, 64 preparations from mineral sources, and 57 preparations based on animal sources. And that's preparations for... Um, different kind of treatment options. The text discusses surgical techniques of making incisions, probing, extraction of foreign bodies, alkali and thermal cauterization, tooth extraction, hmm. excisions, and trocars for draining abscesses, abscesses, draining hydrocell in a cytic fluid, removal of the prostate gland, urethral hmm. stricture dilation, vesicolithotomy, hernia surgery, or sorry, vesicolithotomy, hernia surgery, cesarean section, management of hemorrhoids, fistulae, laparotomy, and management of intestinal obstruction, perforated intestines and accidental perforation of the abdomen with protrusion of omentum and the principles of fracture management. Yes, but they don't say what the mortality rate. No, no, no. Like anybody can have, not, not that this, not that it, I'm not trying to delegitimize, you know, because obviously this is a pretty epic, you know, this is, this is substantial. But my question is, is like, 
when you perforate, you know, intestines or, or bowels or anything, like, basically, I mean, you can operate, you can have a plan, you can have it written down, but you don't have, you're not coming out of it. Right? So actually, I mean, without... No. Do they, do they have, do they talk about, like, people or any kind of record of survivals? Well, so actually, we're going to talk about this more in the next episode, but... <sighs> Um, mm-hmm. actually the perforation of the, uh, or the perforation of the intestine yeah. was considered such a dangerous, uh, such a yeah. low success surgery that, uh, in Victorian London, they or Victorian England. Generally, they would just not do them. They just wouldn't try them cause they would die. And so actually that was one of the, that yeah. was one of the first, uh, that was one of the really, one of the first surgeries that. John Lister used to show that um, that his idea of controlling mm-hmm. infection could work, right? Was mm-hmm. the uh, this uh, this woman was stabbed in the intestines, and um, you know they uh, was stabbed in the intestines, and they ran her to the hospital, and he was kind of there, and he 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 fixed it, he he, he closed her up, and he kind of cleaned. Uh, the wound, and she actually mm-hmm. survived, and the the mortality rate was, you know, comically high. And actually, um, it's why uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, and I'm sure we're gonna find some statistics before the next episode. But there's a lot of anecdotal or evidence we'll that make I've... them up. No, Marie, we never make them up. The uh, the anecdotal we evidence that I've I've read at least is that mm-hmm. um, actually they they would rather treat so surgeons mm-hmm. would. Uh, would actually rather treat someone at their home than in a hospital because in, in the Victorian era, because mm-hmm. to be in a hospital was basically a death oh, sentence. Your death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was like you're in you're, the rate of infection would be um, tremendous. Right. Yes. So, yes. but anyways, so, um, so the, the so uh, Susuruta or Susuruta is considered to be in, in up here. I am uh, sorry. I am, I am certain that I am destroying that name. Um, I'm sure I'll get a phone call from up here soon. To say, what are you doing, Chris, to my beautiful language and my beautiful history? Massacring <laughs> um, it. Massacring it. But anyways, so uh, Sushruta, You're though, welcome. is a uh, Sushruta was around um, 200 years before uh, Hippocrates. And we know yeah. we know Hippocrates is kind of like the the, yeah. the beginning of modern medicine. But really, yeah. um, really, it is Sushruta who kind of laid the groundwork for is a lot of the stuff that we the foundation. We do. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then we get to um, Hippocrates or Hippocrates or Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Um, we should probably figure Hippocrates. out. Yeah. So like um, Socrates, it's crates at the end. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of Seven Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. <laughs> so, You're so, welcome. So Hippocrates, um, so he's considered really the... He's, he's sometimes considered to be the father of medicine, but you know, bunk, again, yes. yeah, which again, I mean, it's really, there were, there were other better 
better uh, surgeons um, such as Sushruta earlier. But mm-hmm. um, but so Hi- Hippocrates, though, really began sort of what we consider to be the Western medical tradition. So this idea of uh, medical ethics in particular is really one mm-hmm. that he is very important with, right? Mm-hmm. So um, created the, uh, the Hippocratic Oath, um, where he talks about, you know, um, you know, we'll use their treatment to uh, heal the sick and even if they're poor and, you know, um, what's, uh, you know, do no harm and, and all that kind of stuff, right? We'll not use their medical skills for evil, um, yes. you know, do like. Uh, yeah. So now the idea, the idea, though, uh, that, Hipp- you know, so Hippocrates really there's this idea and this is kind of an idea that's been shared again throughout all of the. All of the cultures, the ancient cultures of the world, where this idea of the body is being a perfect uh, thing, and there being some kind of imbalance or um, negative energy or something that enters the body in some way, and that being the cause of illness. Now, in the in the ancient ancient past, so we're talking before uh, Hippocrates, um, we're looking at the idea of it being, you know, a, a spirit, a demon or something, right? Some kind mm-hmm. of negative energy that enters the body. Now, around the time of uh, Hippocrates, the idea actually started to become that it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily an unnatural thing to become sick. Being sick was natural, but it was a state of, uh, it was a state of, of misbalance or, or an unbalancedness between the kind of life forces or, um, you know, sort of the good and the bad within the body, right? So, yes. um, and so we see this too in uh, not just Greek ideas, but in um, the ideas of, of you know, ancient uh, Egypt and um, ancient China and India and really all over, right? This idea of there being kind of a, a mixture of things that can create um, balance within the body. Um, now, in particular, the Greeks came up with the idea of... Um, humorism right this idea of, of four humors now um it began really this idea of humors or four humors kind of started um earlier than the greeks right it was around in ancient egypt and it was around in mesopotamia and um you know around for quite mm-hmm. some time but really it was it wasn't it wasn't until uh, hippocrates that it was really applied to medicine in particular right and so, uh, in particular, in the uh, in one of his works titled "On the Nature of Man," um, Hippocrates gives this description of the humorist or humorism argument, and it's quote: "The human body contains blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. These are the things that make up its constitution and cause its pains and health. Health is primarily that state in which these constituent substances are in the correct proportion to each other, both in strength and quantity, and are well mixed. Pain occurs when one of the substances presents either a deficiency or an excess, or is separated in the body and not mixed with the others. End quote. So. It's awesome. I have the exact same quote, except different words. Oh, that's so funny. Well, it's different translations, right? We're not Greek. Different translations. Now. So the idea was that there was a, a balance of these things, right? And so um, everything came to be balanced together. And actually, we still kind of have that idea almost in our medicine in the in the form of um, the idea of homeostasis, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this idea of where the body is 
working properly, its temperature, its pressures, its, you know, uh, you know, concentrations of different things are all together. Mm -hmm. So, and this is actually really where this idea of bloodletting and, um, the treatment of things with like hot and cold or applying oils or whatever, this is really where this idea came from, right? So bloodletting is to remove blood, um, one of the four humors from the body in order to balance the body back out. Right. And so, um, and this idea really, it's interesting because they would apply it to different, um, they would apply it to different sort of things. Right. So, uh, they would say that, you know, um, different foods had different, uh, parts or, or rather Mm -hmm. different foods had different concentrations of humors. So you would, you know, um, you would eat uh, foods that were warm because those mm. would create yellow bile, but cold foods would create phlegm. Which and is so strange because it's it. That's just like um, China, right? With the um, with chi. Yeah, it the is. It is the, of the chi. It's it is the exact so same idea. Similar. Yin and yin and yang. Yeah. Um, it's the same exact idea, right? And so actually, some which my re- mother, Rosemary, Rosemary Mayhew, if you're listening. Big into that. Big into that. Oh, nice. <laughs> Still to this day. Now, there are um, there are also... Uh, this And this idea started to kind of propagate and spread to all kinds of other ideas, right? So, like, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't just kind of the parts of the body. It was, like, it was a way of living, right? Like, you could live that phlegm lifestyle, right? Or, like, right, you know, I guess... Phlegm lifestyle. Phlegm lifestyle. I guess a better way to say it would be, like, um, different parts of different parts of the year would tend the body towards, um, you know, phlegm or bile or blood or black bile, right? Yes. In different areas, different yeah. temperatures, hey, different. What if uh, Paltrow has made a fortune off of this, like with her lifestyle brand, bland, <laughs> brand. Right. So, surprisingly, sorry. goop with is goop. not one of the four humors. No, but you um, know, but this is like the balance, and at different times you are using different and eating different and warm versus cold versus different parts of the body and balance. Right now, what's what's really interesting though to me, at least, is that in some ways it's in some ways it's sort of a. It's one of those cases where they were kind of right for the wrong reasons, right? So in other words, mm-hmm. like, um, the, let's, let's take the idea of hot and cold, right? Hot and cold were considered to be different, and then dry and wet were considered to be, or rather, um, hot and cold and then dry and wet were considered to be kind of um, separate from each other, right? On either ends of a spectrum. Yeah, there were counterbalances. Exactly. And then yeah. each of those uh, each of those four humors were then given, in some cases, a uh, like a, a constituent element, right? So like blood was yeah. air, yellow bile was fire, phlegm was water, and black bile was earth, right? Now, in, in some ways, though, if you have a fever, right, uh, it is effective to cool the body. Right. So hot would actually be tempered by cold in that case. Right. If mm-hmm. um, if you had a, a feeling of dryness in your uh, upper respiratory um, regions, your lungs, and your nose and whatever, um, you want to kind of treat that with steam. Right. You want to actually cause that to be uh, you want to try to introduce a wet environment, so to speak. Right. So it's actually I think I think it's actually very interesting that. 
you know, these kind of things in some ways they kind of do go together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's strange because it is, it seems spiritual and or religious, but this is at the time, almost a complete opposite of that. This is considered scientific method and was definitely a turn from sort of more of the, um, the shaman, the bloodlet, or not, not the bloodletting, but the shaman, you know, thinking that this was a spiritual, uh, a supernatural occurrence, that this is all within human and people. But when you hear it now and you hear these balances or you hear what you're saying, it's, it still seems somewhat, somewhat triggered by something that's more of a spiritual balance than actual physicality. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That and now, phlegm. Every time I hear phlegm, I'm just like, ugh. Yeah, it sounds it sounds pretty terrible, right? So to be one of the four elements. Yeah. It's not a great one. Not a great one. Would, would yeah. rather be you yeah. Know, yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if I'd a pick. Hard to market phlegm. I'm saying it's never for, been for super... lifestyle brands. It's phlegm's <laughs> tough. Tough black file. Yeah, it's a little goth. We can work with that. I was gonna say it's never really it's really never been clear to me what uh, black bile is hmm. supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right. In some ways though, um, in some mm. ways though, like black bile was actually th- almost thought to be, um, what's the word? It was almost the, mm. uh, like, okay. So you had, uh, you had like blood and you had mm-hmm. phlegm and you had, um, so you had blood phlegm and then you would have things like, you know, um, like these were, these were clear things, right? Like mm-hmm. phlegm, blood, mm-hmm. uh, these were actual like physical things, right? But, uh, the biles like yellow bile or, uh, black bile, right? Were actually almost, um, what's the word? Almost like, uh, not really, they, they weren't real like liquids, Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. it's almost like, like it's, an acid and base. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like in some ways, yeah. like yellow bile was like almost, acid. almost it is like yeah. acidic, like the stomach juices, yeah. right? But right. black bile was almost base, black bile was, earth. but black bile was almost also considered to be, uh, like black bile would be like if you were if you had melancholy, if you were depressed. That would be considered mm-hmm. to be a excess of black bile. Whereas if you were manic or angry or whatever, um, that would be a considered a, 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 you know, yellow bile. You'd have too much acid, too much bile. Huh? Right. So yeah. it's Can actually really. Permutations of these four really disgusting things, considering that would make up like, I mean, you could have almost, you know, you could have many different varietals of all of this stuff and none of it sounds really good no none of it sounds great <laughs> now so now now and, and remember Sorry. too right so now this is all all of this stuff that we're learning about the body all this stuff so we've now come to the point where we can do simple surgeries we can do things like mm-hmm. drain um drain pus we can remove um kind of you basically we can do what outside Dr. of the body yeah you can yeah it's like, it's like it's yeah. like what dr pimple popper does on youtube right it's kind of like uh, we were able to do i don't that even stuff. know what that is I don't it's know what phenomenal is, it's really I good right here's here's the thing don't want to know great save that save that for part two all right doing great so 
Um, so this idea of like, we could do these relatively minor surgeries that today you would get done in like a dermatologist office, right? Yeah. Or even your, even your like a uh, general practitioner, like a mole removal or something like that. Mm-hmm. They could do those kinds of surgeries. But, uh, we had this, we had this idea of the body was still sacred. You were trying to treat them by balancing the four humors. And so you weren't necessarily trying to cut into the body. Right. right. You were you were trying to. And if you did have to. Right. If you didn't actually go, have to go in there or something, then um, then there was this idea in the Hippocratic Oath and uh, in, in, in the writings of Hippocrates where you would you, you basically would be cleanly in some way. Right? So your your you know, your mm. hand should be cleaned with water, boiled water, whatever. Right. So um, actually really interesting. But a big part of the Hippocratic Oath was do no harm. And in many cases in the ancient world, that meant do no surgery, right? Because, um, they believed that there was, uh, you know, this mechanical method of intervention was almost, almost, uh, I don't know, heavy handed, right? It was like ham fisted. Like, it's like, why would you, you know, it's like trying to fix your TV by slamming it on the side with a hammer, right? Like it's a very, uh, gross exaggerated method. And it's, it's very uneducated, right? Yeah. This is a very educated way of, or what was considered a very educated way of evaluation and discernment versus you're just going to open up something and start, right. you know, messing around with it. Yeah. And so around, um, so around 200 CE, we have Galen who mm-hmm. uh, really, he actually really did a lot with suturing and things and removing actually removing um removing before then but before then ptolemy yes right so the one thing that i found that was very interesting about um greek center of learning at alexandria besides it being this you know that they lavishly supported libraries museums basically this acquiring of knowledge and documenting of knowledge was medical research, and it was renowned that this was where the, this huge repository of medical knowledge was now being kept. And one of the biggest one of the biggest advents of the time was the idea of the pulse and understanding the pulse and understanding that it actually was it came from arteries and it came from the heart, and that it was. Um, you know, it, it could be triggered by uh, fear or or in being relaxed or and but it's all of a sudden sort of this look inwards to uh, what the body is doing that has an effect within it that uh, that's almost um, separate or becoming sort of more of a science than the humors, which I thought was really kind of very. Very, very interesting. And there's more advent of surgery within this time as well. Like they're getting new metals and they're starting to actually, you know, have sharper, sharper instruments. But the idea that the, the pulse and how, how blood flows within the body is, is more of a, I thought was more of an interesting kind of, um, advent than, than, um, well, than some of the other stuff, but 
Anyways, sorry. No, it's actually it's actually <laughs> yeah. super interesting. Like the idea, like it actually makes it's me such wonder. An eloquent you know, job like, at it. Yes, it but, seems so yeah. obvious that your pulse is like caused by your heart getting you nervous. Well, but you don't even know what that is, right? What well, is I was gonna say, yeah, is, like the actually, pulse like is blood throwing, you know, but that there's a conduit, right? And they yeah, had no, so weird. That, that there was no idea that that was a, a system that did that, and that yeah. system was driven by the heart. Which again is like if you're not if you're not digging around and actually seeing it in things, um, you know, or or dissecting, then this is something that is all sort of more educational and more theoretical. But then to be able to start to identify that and to be able to say, oh, if we're if we're frightened or if we're in flight mode, it does this versus it, you know, when you're tranquil and relaxed. It's to me that's like a huge step forward in acknowledging the internal mechanism as it is versus something, this weird kind of, you know, earth, air, fire, water type of thing, which still was hugely prevalent and was going to be hugely prevalent for, you know, hundreds of years after this as well. Sure. So, so at this point now we're around the year around 200, and this actually is the first, uh, really the year when the actual removal of body parts became relatively, mm-hmm. not necessarily successful, but u- was viewed as being useful. Mm-hmm. And actually, this really, this really almost in some ways began with a mastectomy for breast cancer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so Leonidas of Alexandria um, and Galen both did a lot of work on this, and specifically Leonidas... Uh, claimed that you had to remove the breast and then cauterize the wound to actually uh, to actually stop bleeding, right? Chardonnay went down the wrong tube. That sounds very painful. It's all good. Now, in 208, uh, around 208 was really mm-hmm. the first use of things as anesthetics, right? So wine yep. and even cannabis, right? And that was Hua Tuo who did that. Mm-hmm. Now, the so so to set the stage now, we're... We're at a point where, so surgery really kind of basically stops being studied. Um, and it isn't really until, it really isn't until kind of, you know, battles and stuff where people get a chance to actually study these body parts and in particular get to use their surgical techniques. Yes. Right. Um, yes. And sort of necessity is the mother yeah. of invention right absolutely and so this is actually where we start to see in after the church bans surgery right we or, or at least you know bans kind of the cutting of people open for medical techniques and all that kind of good mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. is really where we start to see surgeons become associated with barbers right and this is actually interestingly i, f- I found this anecdote online i'm not 100 percent certain of the veracity of this mm-hmm. but the basic idea better. is that um, the reason that the barbers became surgeons was that they were hanging around the monasteries so often and mm-hmm. the the monks were really the kind of the, during the Middle Ages, were really the repository for Western knowledge, right? Because mm-hmm. um, they were the only people that really could read and write. And so the barbers would come and the monks weren't allowed to perform surgeries. It was banned for them to uh, cut human bodies. And so they would actually ask the barbers to do it for them because they had these knives already and were already dexterous enough to do things like shaving and, and whatever, right? Which is crazy. Which is super interesting. Now, mm-hmm. now, so 
really though, from the time of kind of Galen and um, the use of anesthesia as, you know, mm-hmm. wines and, and different kind of like hallucinogens and whatever you can get. And that, and that was, by the way, um, that was also, you know, so uh, Huatuo was a, a Chinese physician. So mm-hmm. um, this was really anesthesia, the idea of kind of making someone um, not feel pain by medicating them in some way really, um, you know, it was, it was potentially used before this. Um, but this is really the uh, one of the first kind of like written times where we have this sort of being um, stated specifically as like not just like okay you can get super drunk where it was like we will administer For this herb yes. right we'll administer this herb to calm the person and see what it will do to their to their body and it was right? done sometimes with acupuncture as well yeah okay? absolutely which was in very very early form of pain. Uh, remediation. Although I can't imagine there's just not enough needles in the world that would shut that off. Right. Or drink. Right. Really, I mean, yeah. Anyways, yes. But before, before any kind of real uh, anesthesia, that would be, that would be what you would have. Yeah, absolutely. And so this was really, uh, this was really, so specifically what uh, Hua Tuo was famous for is um, Mephizen which uh, I guess translates to cannabis boiling powder. Mm. And so um, basically what this was is sort of a uh, sort of a special type of wine that had cannabis powder inside of it of some sort or some kind of hash or whatever. And so um, basically it was... sound half bad. No, basically it was used as an anesthesia, right? So it was specifically used for medical purposes, right? Um, But also, yeah, also, though, using acupuncture, um, what's the word? Um, Potentially, he's also potentially said to have used acupuncture for anesthesia, although um, it seems like there's not, uh, what's the word? Uh, There's not a huge, not not a huge amount of literature out there to support that, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is enough, you know, so anyways, this this is an important, though, step towards the idea of anesthesia being something useful for surgery. Yes. And the acknowledgement that we have to knock someone, that we have to physically remove them from feeling pain for this to actually work. Yeah. Because at that and point they were holding people down, right? I mean, I mean, it was that that's, they would bind you down or physically hold you down to have surgery done. Well, and so, and so that was really, that was really where, what surgery was like yeah. for a really long time, right? Where, yeah. You would just kind of, you know, okay, well, bite down on this and don't look at your leg. And no. we're just going to take it off. Or right? mastectomy. We're going to cut off your breast and then cauterize. Yeah, it's not can great. I, can I tell you a funny story about cauterization? I don't know if I've told you this already. Have I told you my, my husband Paul's story about cauterization? No. Oh, okay. Just a, just as a fun little... Uh, I thought you meant the little... other funny story about cauterization. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's Go so ahead. many. There's so... History is rich with funny stories about cauterization. Um, back when I was, before we were married and we were just, you know, we just moved in together. 
I had a series of really terrible ingrown toenails and I would go to the doctor and they, they would, what they wanted to do is they were like, well, here's, here's what we can do X, Y, and Z, but really what's going to solve this is cauterization. And I would go home and cause I was like, oh man, I, that really, oh, that's off that does. And I would go home and I would tell my husband, Paul, Hey, so this is, this is what they want, but they want to cauterize it. He's like, I see what the big deal is, babe, cauterize it. You should just cauterize it. And I'm like, baby, I don't know. I just, you know, and so this went on for a month, literally. Like I would be in pain. I'd be soaking my foot. And he's like, and all he would come in and say is he's like, I just, yeah, I don't see what the, I, I don't see why you're being such a baby about this. Or I don't, you should just have it cauterized. And finally, at one point I said, sweetheart, do you know what cauterization is? And he literally stopped and he was like, no, not really. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, darling, that's when they take acid and they burn it. Yeah. They burn it off. And he's like, well, Jesus Christ, no, don't do that. That sounds Good terrible. That's and hilarious. I'm like, and that's when I knew that was the man I was going to marry. That was the man you were going to marry. Yes, man. Because for like, he had no problem being like, absolutely, positively, you should cauterize it. Zero doubt. Zero oh. question in it. So like every time I, every time like anybody's like, oh yes, and cauterize it. That's what I think of is like back in you know ancient times, some doctor you know thinking about mastectomies and being like, yeah, and then we'll just cauterize it. Wait, what is that again? Oh God, that sounds <laughs> no. Is there has somebody invented anesthesia yet? No, nothing's nothing? going on. Oh, there's something. Okay, there is. Oh, oh. I don't even want to get into it, Marie. Toes are gross. Oh God. Yeah. So I just, that was my, but it's not even, it could have been about anything and it's just more, it's more hysterical. Cause it's like, he just thought, he was like, well, yeah, cauterize it. And finally it's like, huh. I don't you know, even think so, this guy knows what he's talking about. When I was a kid, I don't know if he knows what, what this whole means. no idea what he means. When I was a kid, sounds good. When I was a kid, my dad had really gross toenails, like mm. so gross. And I remember being so afraid as a kid that I was going to do something to cause my toenails to grow like that. <laughs> that like, I take such good care of my feet. Like I'm so like, I'm so weird about it. Oh God, it's so gross. All right. Anyway. So, oh, okay. A little personal so, moment in the middle, in the midst of this barbaric butchery to just learn a little you. bit more about your house. Now. So surgery again, we have not figured out. So at this point now we're talking like, from 200, uh, from the year 200 mm-hmm. all the way up to basically the 1700s, so like yeah. 1710, yeah. 1720 yeah. around there. Um, Got we're a bunch s- of people just yelling, just cauterize it. Yeah, That's really pretty, much, bad pretty much Marie's husband <laughs> with a saw being like, we'll just do it. Just don't even worry about what? it. You know, just cauter. Oh, wait, we got to use the saw on them. Oh, God, no, I don't. Do it. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. And so. Surgery, though, had started to become the need for surgery had started to become clear, right? Mm -hmm. Where people were, um, you know, people it became obvious to people around this time period that the body really was more of a mechanical sort of thing that potentially we could learn things about the body by um, taking it apart and looking at it and stuff. And so this really gets us to the era of John Hunter who is uh, a Scottish surgeon mm-hmm. and is considered to be the uh, considered by many to be one of the very first surgeons to really apply the scientific method 
to to surgery and in particular to be especially important due to his knowledge and study of um, pathology and anatomy and the clear connections that he made between animal anatomy and human anatomy. Yes. Now at the time, again, it was, you know, it was really, it cannot be stated enough. The kind of ridiculous level that, uh, that these surgeons had to go through to, (laughs) you know, get bodies for study, right? (laughs) Like they had to pay, uh, you know, gangs and grave robbers and things to bring them bodies um, that were relatively fresh for study. Right. And so, and and so great ad hoc market there. Right. And, and, and before, before Hunter really surgery was considered, you know, very similar to like literally very similar to being a butcher, right? It was Mm -hmm. considered to be a practical, like almost a trade skill. You didn't need any knowledge really to be a good surgeon at the time all you really needed was uh, a lot of strength and pretty quick hands. You know, you needed to be able to kind of, you know, cut, cut the wound off or get in there, get it done, close it up and be finished. You, that was, those were really the skills that were important to a surgeon, not necessarily a knowledge of, you know, okay, well, if I cut here, I'm going to encounter a kidney and it's going to look like this and it should be doing that. Right. Like the actual, like, a surgeon knowing how the body operated was not a necessity for the skill. Like was not a necessity no, for the job. No. Well, and there was no shared collective or there was very few shared collectives in schools to go in and, and teach and view and yeah, have ab- a forum in which to learn. Absolutely. So there, so there were, there were surgery schools, right? And actually John mm-hmm. Hunter went to, um, uh, one of the oldest, uh, really one of the oldest schools um, for surgery that are out there. Yeah. And so, um, and so, uh, so he actually, he uh, was at Chelsea hospital and then St. Bartholomew's hospital. Um, Now at the time, right. So these were all very important. um, These were important times for surgery. These were really the period where like within a hundred years, those three major issues, the issue of pain management, the issue of bleeding management, and then the issue of uh, infection control, you know, within 100, 150 years, uh, those problems were solved in some ways. Yes. Right. And really allowed for the beginning of, of modern day surgery to occur. And, um, and in many ways, the work of John Hunter is sort of the linchpin to all of that. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things that, John Hunter brought to surgery was the study of animal models. So particularly taking apart animals like pigs and dogs and horses and kind of, you know, pretty much whatever he could get his hand on. We had a small farm, right? He actually had. Yes. Yeah. And actually looking at, um, looking at what the parts of those animals seem to do and how they went together and then using that to draw conclusions about, the way that the human body must also operate. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a section in, there's a section in, um, the knife man, which, uh, which I really enjoyed where it talks about, um, it talks about this idea of sort of a, uh, basically cab drivers, like coach drivers at the time suffered from a really common ailment where their leg hitting the cat, hitting the carriage, 
um, consistently would create basically like a big, uh, like a sore. Yeah, like a sore Ooh. or a wound or something like a big, mm-hmm. bloody, bleeding, pus-filled kind of sack thing, right? And so, at the time, you're um, the tr- welcome. At the tr- at the time, the treatment for that was cutting mm-hmm. off the leg. Right, like that was what would happen yeah. is they would cut the leg uh, off, and, and if you were yes. lucky, if yes. you were lucky, you wouldn't die in the hospital. And the other thing would... is, you're driving a cab, you're poor. Yeah, so you're not. That's rich. what you're going to afford. That's right. What's and so, happen. and and these were public. These were public hospitals for the poor, mm. right? Yes. And so, um, so that was the thing was you would cut the leg off, and then you would see what would happen. And what uh, Hunter decided to try to do was to do a process where you would actually close off. Um, the blood path from the wounded area and rather divert it around the area. Hmm. And this was something that had been tried uh, previously. It had been talked about in Roman and, you know, Greek um, medical literature. And it just had never been done successfully really in, in, in London. And uh, so to test this idea, cause he had tried it a few times and the patients had died. He wasn't really sure what was going on. And so what he tried to do then was he actually tested it on an, on an animal uh, patient. And so specifically what he did was um, he looked at the antler of a, uh, of a deer oh, and yes. he diverted the blood uh, around the antler um, to another part, kind of part of the antler, let's say, and was amazed to find that the antler at first seemed cold and looked like it was dying. But then within a week, the antler was growing again and it was warm to the touch. So the blood flow had returned, although it had diverted around the part that he wanted to divert it from. It's amazing. And so so this Mm -hmm. showed that then you could actually do this, that this idea would work if you moved the site of the blood diversion um, farther up the blood line, basically up to like the femoral artery of your leg. But again, figuring all of this out, like arteries, like that this is a a huge roadmap inside the human body and how to reroute it. Well, even, even the idea, even the idea, like, like one step extracted from abstracted from that, where animals must be like humans. Like this is, that's crazy. This is before Darwin. Yes. But Hunter too was very, like he was very impassioned about like, finding and figuring this stuff out so much so that he also experimented on himself. Supposedly he did, which is Supposedly pretty interesting. He did. So now, so, and, and so just to finish that story off, yes, sorry. the, uh, the transition uh, that actually worked, it became known as Hunter's surgery. And, uh, he, and, and it's one of the, one of many things that he, um, one of many things that he became famous for, Right. So um, he became well known for all kinds of different things, right? So uh, specifically, um, specifically this idea of testing on animals first to see how humans would respond, um, mm-hmm. the creation of actual information on anatomy and physiology yes. as important to uh, the study of the body, and also really uh, applying a scientific method of testing and then taking in results and then using those to do further surgery. Um, whereas before, again, I don't, I, we have not gotten gruesome enough to describe just how terrible <laughs> surgery was. Oh, no, we're, um, we're sparing everyone. I think beforehand. nice. Well, as well as we can. He also, 
from what I was reading, legitimized like the idea of the postmortem, right? So you have yes. a corpse, and what is it that you are going to be able, you know, grave robbed or not, what are you learning from that dead body? Which at the time, again, if you think about it, was was very, very provocative to say, we're going to desecrate this body just so we can find out what it does. This is someone's loved one. This is, this is uh, again, this is, this, d- this person deserves a proper burial and the body should not be, you know, should not have this sort of uh, violation to it was a move from that type of thought into more, this is now something that we can learn from and how do we, how do we help the living by understanding, uh, by being able to dissect the dead, mm-hmm. which, is a huge, which is a huge move as well. Now, one, so one, so now John Hunter, though, is a little bit controversial. Yes. Because he uh, was, again, as a lot of surgeons of the time was involved because he, he, again, he wasn't just a surgeon. He was an anatomist and anatomists in particular were like, you know, almost viewed like necromancers, right? In like D and D, like they were going to graves and digging up bodies and painting. We're not in D and D. I mean, if you talk about necromancy in general, yeah, yeah it's not a great thing. Now, polite society. <laughs> now, in particular, Hunter was known for having a ginormous collection of uh, specimens. Yes. So animals and plants and uh, bones people. and all kinds of stuff and people. And so, mm-hmm. in particular, he. Um, he is known to have gotten the, the skeleton of a famous giant, uh, Charles Byrne. And uh, mm-hmm. basically what occurred supposedly is Hunter, uh, Hunter paid a member of the funeral party to steal the body, fill the coffin with rocks, <sighs> and then um, give him the skeleton. And so, uh, yeah, so... Quite the cabinet of curiosities. Yeah, so and actually this this skeleton is actually still on display. Mm. Um or rather I don't know if it's on display actually, but it's in the uh Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of London's or R- Royal College of Surgeons in London. And so it's kind of interesting. I mean, you you have this sort of what's the word? Like you have this sort of interesting person who makes such great strides for, you know, his, his methods and discoveries and ideas have probably saved countless lives throughout history. Yes. Yes. But he was also also sort of a ghoul. Clearly. Yeah. Clearly kind of a uh, interesting person. Right. And so another thing that he supposedly is known for, which Marie alluded to was self experimentation. Mm -hmm. Supposedly this is in particular about gonorrhea or uh, syphilis, and so basically... Um, As you do. Yeah, so basically he uh, supposedly treated, uh, got someone with um, with gonorrhea and claimed to have inoculated mm-hmm. himself against it. Um, but, so the, the basic idea was that he, <coughs> at the time, me, he yes. was claiming that gonorrhea and syphilis were from the same root disease. Mm-hmm. And so he said, okay, well... I bet I can, if I inoculate myself against gonorrhea, but then try to give myself gonorrhea, I'll get syphilis. 
And so supposedly... Um, it's, it's sort of like 52-card pickup. It's ridiculous. Really. And so suppo- like, I don't even know... I don't know, know enough about gonorrhea or syphilis to know how different they are, like, whatever, but... And anyways, that's okay. Supposedly, that's okay. supposedly uh, he claimed that, okay, well, this, you know, he proved this experiment to himself, I suppose, but in reality, there's no evidence that this happened. Um, but the fact that he willingly knew what he was doing, I think, speaks well, to <laughs> well, wait, wait, his investment within, like his profession. Well, that's what I'm saying though, is yeah. that there's no, yeah, there's no evidence that he actually did this, right? It's supposedly, oh, well, supposedly. Yeah. And the thing, I love, the thing I love is so. in a lot of, you read a lot, uh, cause again, mm-hmm. this book, so this book is great, but there's loads of stuff out there on John Hunter. Mm-hmm. What I really like is the idea of, um, in a lot of these things, it's like, well, actually, he just did this on a third party. Like, he still tested on a human. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like something no, that we there's... today would consider to be yes. so yes. No, morbid and, like, not He still robbed graves. Okay. He still robbed graves. So right. I mean... like, he still wasn't a, a great person. Now, no. And, and actually, what I find really fascinating about him <laughs> in particular is that he really did not like school. He hated reading, no. supposedly, his entire life. And so there's some really interesting bits in the book where it talks about his time at school and his time specifically with his, with his brother who was also a surgeon, his older brother who was a surgeon and talking about how, you know, um, John hated, you know, he just did not like school so much that he actually went to become a surgeon because he, the only thing that he enjoyed about uh, learning was actually learning like naturalism and Mm -hmm. learning about kind of, you know, uh, bodies and things and whatever. So, I, I, I just find it to be a super compelling story. So so well, we're talking now, John Hunter really began this revolution of surgery, and uh, he he died in uh, 1793 at the age of 65. Mm-hmm. Now, the things that he did really began, um, really began the study of, the study of, of medicine, the study of surgery, um, that's extremely, uh, extremely important, right? Yeah. In particular, he um, was very important in the idea of uh, one. One thing that we didn't mention at all was really his um, his study of child development and specifically of like uh, fetal development, like maternal, like like a childbirth and stuff. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of important work in that area, and he also supposedly was one of the inspirations for Doctor Jekyll. Um, which is really fascinating. Cool, yeah. Yeah. Which I is really, which is really interesting. Now, so That's we're talking, so his, his work really began kind of the, uh, what's the word? I would say the Renaissance of like modern medicine in a lot of ways that that was, that was what, that was one of the things that shepherded in, you know, more common anesthesia antiseptic, the idea of, of, of surviving surgery, that and the need for the fact that what was happening in the world at that time, too, was that weapons, war, things were becoming more prevalent that could do harm to a body. So you had to, on the flip side, have people that could figure out how to repair a human body as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so this really is kind of the beginning of also the, 
the period where we begin to see surgery as a, yeah, as a scientific practice and specifically lays the groundwork for people like John Lister or, or Joseph Lister, mm-hmm. rather, sorry, um, who would later, we're going to talk about more in the next episode. But w- what's fascinating to me, actually, I think, Marie, and this is kind of something that we're going to hope mm-hmm. to get to, maybe we should do it in, in another episode because this one's running kind of long. Yes. Is um, really the last kind of, really the last kind of gasp of ancient surgery was this, the American Civil War. Yes. Right? Where yes. we're right at this cusp now. We're talking right. We're talking about, um, at this point now, we're starting to really get a sense of, you know, okay, the body seems to work like a machine, and if we are uh, intelligent about testing that we can do, then we can yes. kind of learn more about the way that the body operates and yeah. use that to our advantage. So let's put it under the ultimate stress test. Right, right, and so, right? and so Which, we begin. Yeah. So we see this, and and again, Barbarism. like yeah. again, like these, um, these texts. Some of the texts that were written by um, the students of John Hunter at these colleges, and mm-hmm. um, these works on anatomy and physiology and the way that surgery should be performed. Um, were in used, America. Were used in America, and we're also yeah. used. I mean, just generally for uh, wars, but the Civil War is really one of the first times that surgery sees yeah. its use widespread around um, around a battlefield. Yeah, it's the apex of so many things. Like, on, like I was saying, on one side you have weaponry. Like, you are gearing up for war within the United States. So what is a weapon that can eliminate your enemy as quickly as possible? How do you do that versus... What does that weapon do to a population and how do you fix the people that are affected by it? And those two things kind of come to this massive, um, you know, conflict within the Civil War. And it's maybe we should we should probably go into it for the next episode. But it is it is like a really bloody, awful time because it is stress testing the idea of what surgery can do and what it does. Um, but it also sort of heralds the next phase of, of medicine. Right. It's kind of the, it's sort of interesting. It is in many ways kind of a stress test for, like you were saying, a stress test for these modern ways of doing surgery. Yes. And also a, also a, a really terrible view of just how far <laughs> we had to come still. Yes. Right? Because yeah, we had a mixing of say, you know, guns that could shoot at a much faster rate and the use of, um, more advanced military tactics and, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and a specialized ammunition that they say is what caused so much of the damage. Right. And also, and also, I mean, in some ways, almost, we, we almost knew too much where we became almost, you know, confident in our surgical abilities, which maybe led to, uh, more, uh, more deaths, right. More infections. I mean, we, as opposed to say well, leaving someone yeah, with a bullet yeah. wound or leaving yeah. someone with a bullet in their leg, we would go in and, and remove the bullet in some way, yes. lead to infection and then death. So well, 600 estimated 620 
thousand deaths in the Civil War. Two thirds of them were caused from infection. I mean, it's amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's it's a gruesome, gruesome, gruesome statistic, but it's also very telling about what uh, what happened very, very quickly as well. And here's and here's the thing too, right? We're going to so next episode, dear listeners. We are going to talk about the Civil War, which, um, for those that aren't in the United States, uh, went from uh, 1861. was not very civilized. <laughs> no, went from 1861 to 1865. Yes, um, was a horrendous war. I think, I think still, yes, um, still the bloodiest war in American history. Yes, I absolutely. mean it was all Americans fighting Americans. So I mean it kind of you know, it gets a leg up so to speak in that sense. But. Um, but extremely and, interesting. And w- what I find to be actually so fascinating is, so the Civil War occurred, uh, started 1861 to 1865. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Lister, who we are going to be talking about, really was one of the, uh, one of really the, the first surgeons to utilize a method of actually cleaning, cleaning wounds and cleaning surgical areas to mm-hmm. cause... Um, What's the word to cause uh, lower infections? Yes. Right. This actually occurred. Sanitation, just basic sanitation to to keep yes. away from septus. Yeah. Absolutely, and but also the use of things like uh, phenol and other chemicals, right? But um, this kind of really occurred uh, right at the end of the Civil War. So it's it's interesting how it all kind of happens. It you know you just think had had Lister had his kind of eureka moment or had he been born a mm-hmm. year or two earlier or something, um, just the number of lives that could have been potentially saved, right? It's, well, it's really, yeah. it's fascinating it's to think. Chicken and egg in some ways too, because you don't know how bad things can be unless you have a huge amount of bodies. Right? Absolutely you have true. To treat. Absolutely and you realize true. like, this is, this is, this is not working. And I mean, there, there are even, uh, processes and procedures that come out of the Civil War, like triage, that are still used today. So it's it's this really gruesome, I wouldn't say necessity, but it's this really gruesome sort of linchpin moment that happens within just a number of years that kind of bring everything to the focus. Fascinating. Wow. Yes. Yes. All and right. we even have more gruesome stories and pictures. Maybe we should get some more... Maybe we should do a little bit more like, uh, I don't know, more uh, bloody, more, more bloody stories. <laughs> more bloody reading. More, Goodness, more stories Marie. about eyeballs and gonorrhea. Oh, God. We should ah, bring toast. On, we should, we should ah, eyeballs and gonorrhea. We, huh? we should yeah. see if we can get uh, Mike back on to talk about some Civil War ghosts that I'm sure he's seen mm. or knows mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Good mm-hmm. stuff. That's Mike Brown mm-hmm. from Pleasing mm-hmm. Terrors. Ladies and gentlemen, check out the podcast. Yes. All right. People faint. People, People faint. faint. Scary. Faint. Terror. Sir. We got anything else to talk about? We doing uh, good? A pleasure as always. Where can they find us if they wanna if they wanna tweet out? We love hearing from from all of all of you. Uh, I am at Team Giant Squid on Twitter. She sure is, and I am at Mad Scientist Pod. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram. Actually, you can follow the show on Instagram. What? We have an Instagram. Right now, it's account? just me. 
Um, it's just me taking pictures of my cat. It's this me is, and my cats, but it's, it's fun. This is chippy. Yeah, and so that's mad underscore scientist underscore podcast. Um, and yeah, Chippy is out of the hospital, ladies and gentlemen. Chippy doing great. Shout out, um, Chippy. We want to thank everyone at the uh, University of Minnesota uh, Animal Hospital, Small Animal Hospital. Yes. You know, it's it's where uh, Katie goes to school at the University of Minnesota for Aww. vet school. And uh, they've, I mean, they're just phenomenal over there. And, you know, Chippy, um, Chippy was looking grim for a little bit there. But uh, <gasps> thankfully, Chippy's coming. Chippy's feeling better. Just phenomenal news. All right. And uh, of course, you can buy our merchandise uh, at uh, Redbubble. You can get it from uh, Desdemona Howard. If you search the Mad Scientist podcast, you can check us out on. Her stuff uh, is insanely cool. It is so cool. I just got one of the shirts. Which one? I'm like, so uh, the the scientist one. I have two mugs with the, uh, the scientist one. And now she's got this really cool one of a coffee cup with a skull on it. And I'm like, yes, please. Oh my goodness, that's so awesome. That's you can also cool. check out our pins at nat, oh. notbadluck.bigcartel.com, um, which is really, really cool. So got a whole bunch of uh, really awesome pins there. So please go support um, all the artists that do stuff for us, you know, and uh, help out the show. And of course, you can check out threadless.com, search Mad Scientist Podcast, and you can get uh, stuff there too. So, uh, so yeah, pretty excited. Yes. Gonna be and great. Next week we'll we will discuss more. Uh, maybe we, I don't, we didn't cover leeches. Oh, you know what? There's still so many good things we didn't cover: leeches or electrocution or any oh, of the stuff. Goodness. that's really some good stuff coming up. No, it's true. But you know, Victorian yes. Victorian era <clears throat> surgery was real weird. So, so we'll get into it. Such pretty, such pretty stuff. By that, you know, by and I will be in a in a fetal position, just you know, gripping a stuffed animal by that point. But it's <laughs> all good. Upset. For Just you, upset. for you, dear listeners, ain't no thing. All right. Have a good <laughs> night, dear listeners. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 